want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. <coughs> Romans chapter 11. We're going to go through the whole chapter. <laughs> We're going deep sea diving this morning. We're... There are some precious truths at the bottom, but we're going to have to, to, to dive. This is, uh, I tell people a lot of times, I think, I think I've told you all as well, I, I believe that Romans 9 through 11 are the deepest three chapters in the Bible, I think. That's my opinion. And I think Romans 11 is the deepest. Uh, i got to be honest, I'm the pastor I read my Bible all the time, and I'm not saying I read Romans 11 all the time. Um, it is not light reading. But you know what? Because of the way that we preach at Haynes Creek, we preach in the whole Bible. If God authored it, it is worth our time and profitable for our souls. That's why we're doing this. Amen. And so, before we start, I wanted to comment, uh, this won't be really about the sermon, but um, this last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, what we witnessed as Americans was an egregious evil. Uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis were uh, marching against and decrying many of the same truths, gospel truths, that we talked about last week, and that is that every human is created in the image of God, and that God desires that every tribe, tongue, and nation hear the gospel. That's, right. Amen. That's why racism is inherently anti-gospel, because it denies the glory of God in creation, and it denies the glory of God in salvation. Amen. The events in Charlottesville have been billed as a black and white kind of matter, but it wasn't just black and white. What they also, I think the way it's been built that way is because, of course, it was surrounding uh, the events around the Robert E. Lee statue. But these neo-Nazis weren't just raging against blacks, they were raging also against Jews. Jews, quote-unquote, Jews will not replace us, they shouted, with torches in their hands. Why, and I think it's an important time to address this right before we go into the text, because Paul's getting ready to talk about Jews and the gospel. And I get a question at, all the time. People ask me, why do people hate the Jews so much? <laughs> I think history bears out that the Jews have had a heck of a road. Uh, Adolf Hitler massacred over 6 million Jews in the name of what many of these neo-Nazis were touting last week. Why is it that America, not just America, you know, it's not... Why is it that they have a problem all over the world with people not really looking at them correctly? This isn't an American problem. It's not a... Um, with the way that we view Jews, it's not just a white problem. People have marginalized Jews almost since the beginning that they've ever existed. Why is that? Paul addresses it in Romans 11. That's why we're going to go there. This morning in Romans chapter 11, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul knew that there would be a temptation for Gentiles to consider themselves superior to and to possibly even mistreat Jews. Paul was aware of that writing Romans. And I think as we're going to see in Romans 11, the reason why Jews are oppressed 
isn't simply social. It's not even simply ethnic. It's theological. There is a reason. And he's very clear about this. So if you want to open the Bibles to Romans chapter 11, you want to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? If Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That is, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's you and I. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the whole world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous. We're going we're to examine that, that phrase. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God... Ooh, this, is, this one's powerful. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for their sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift to Him who, that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, use Your people, the Jews, to humble a Gentile church. Amen. You may be seated. Just so we can, just so I can get this out of the way. Is anyone in here a Palestinian Jew? Okay, so I'm going to refer to you as a Gentile then. Everybody understand that? Okay. That is not a joke. I'm just making sure. Because if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a Palestinian Jewish Christian, then you're like the best of both worlds, I guess. <laughs> we talked many times about the fact that Romans nine, ten, and eleven come as a package. When you read nine, ten, and eleven, that's a discourse. They all come together. Paul is is addressing one big issue in nine through eleven. And because 9 through 11 come together, it's not because they're disconnected from the rest of the book of Romans, but, they, but God is addressing a specific issue in 9 through 11. And because of that, I want to read, you just listen to me, uh, something Paul says at the beginning of 9 that we need to be remembering if we're going to interpret 11 accurately. And this is what he says. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed... For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. One of the primary reasons that Paul sets off into Romans 9-11 through is because he knows, he understands that there are going to be people out there who go, what about the promises to the Jews? What about all that stuff you said in the Old Testament to the Jews? Is it, I mean, because I'm looking around and the Jews aren't doing too good. Paul sets off onto this discourse about God's sovereignty. He gives this robust three-chapter picture of God's vast, immense providence overall because he knows there's people reading their Old Testament and they're going, I don't see the promises being fulfilled right now, Paul. What about all these blessings? What about this land promise? What about this inheritance? The Jews not doing too well. In Romans 9, Paul responds as this. Those promises made to the Jews, they cannot fail because God's in control of it all. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says that these promises will be fulfilled by us taking the gospel to them and them hearing and believing the gospel. In Romans chapter 11, where we are, Paul finally gets to the crux of the matter, and that's why have the Jews turned away why has God hardened the Jews, and when are they going to come back? How is the Word of God going to be fulfilled? That's what Paul's answering here. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul's saying this, there's no way God's given up on the Jews. Why? Because I'm a Jew. And I believe. 
Paul's using himself. God has no more given up on the Jews today than he's given up on Gentiles. Which is good news. But if we're watching Charlottesville, if we were there at Auschwitz, we'd kind of go, I don't see promises being fulfilled. Paul has an answer to that. Verses 2 through 7. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. That's what Elijah said to God. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. You know, I actually quoted that scripture. Somebody told me they were from... uh, There's a guy downtown named Ryan Busnitz. Do you all know him? He's from Orange County or that area. And he was talking about how there's all these evangelical churches in Southern California. And I was like, are we talking about the same California? And I think, I think you know, Ron was like, oh yeah, there's brothers and sisters in California. And I think I was just like Elijah. I was like, I thought that, I, th- I think God was telling me through Ron kind of what God was telling Elijah. I got people at places you don't even know about. But what Paul's using here is he's saying, he's saying before he touches the future of the Jews, he wants his Gentile readers to know that right now, at the present time, there are Jews who believe in Jesus. There is a faithful remnant of Jews. In verses 2-5, through five, Paul is likening the current remnant of believing Jews to the remnant of believing Jews in Elijah's day. In other words, Elijah thought he was the only believer left. And what's Paul say, or what's God say? No way, dude, I got 7,000 followers that you don't even know about. And Paul's saying it's the same way today. There's, there are Jews who believe in Jesus. You may not see them, you may not know they exist, but there are Jews coming to Christ right now. When we watch the news and we witness all the wars and unbelief in Jews, and we, the Palestinians, and you know, how many people have ever seen something about Palestine and the wars going on in Israel? You have a pulse, I'm sure. We need to understand when we're watching that, there are people in Israel, there are ethnic Jews that believe in Jesus. I think there's a common misconception that God is going to save Jews some other way than by Jesus. I know a lot of people who think that God is going to save the Jews one way and save Gentiles another way. No. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is for Jews and Gentiles alike. No Jew, no Gentile, no American is going to come to the living God apart from His sovereign grace. That's That's what Paul says in Romans 9. Then in Romans 10, Paul says, no one's going to come to God apart from His grace. In Romans 10, Paul says, no one's going to come to God except through Jesus and hearing and believing the gospel. Okay, that's, that's, that's Romans 9 through 10. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul reminds us that it's always been about faith because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that comes before the law. So it's always been about faith. Now here's the question. 
Are there one people of God or two people of God? Ding, ding, ding. One. There's one per people of God. How Paul's treating it like it's one what? Tree. I don't know if anyone has a Schofield Bible here. I'm not hating on the Schofield Bible. The Schofield Bible's actually done a lot for our for American church. But this is one critique of the Schofield Bible is it seems to insinuate sometimes that God has two peoples. That's not right. God, he's dealing with Jews in different ways sometimes. Obviously, we know that through the Old and New Testament. But there is one people of God, church. We're not going to get to heaven and then, you know, Peter's going to be going, Jew, you're gen- yeah, you look like a Gentile. Get, get over. No. It's one people of God. The bride. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through the Jews' trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, what in the world does that mean? Stop there. That means God's plan for the Jews. Hear me now. This is kind of the whole sermon rests on you understanding this. That means God's plan for the Jews is to cause them to look at, at their inheritance and their promised blessings given to us, the Gentiles, in the church, and for them to become jealous and turn to Jesus. That's God's plan. Does that, does that make sense? Let me, let, me, let me reword it again. In the Old Testament, God wanted the Jews to be a light unto the world. Isaiah 49, you are to be a light unto the nations. There, God's purpose for the Jews was for the Gentiles, the world, to see the law of God and to come to God. In the New Testament, God has hardened the Jews and they've used their law to boast into themselves. Now He's made the church in Christ, full of Gentiles, the light of the world. He's made us the light of the world. Now He wants the Jews to become jealous and to see us in Christ and to see all the inheritance and all the blessings for those that are originally theirs and for them to become jealous and come back to the household of God. Does that make sense? Okay, that's deep, I told you. It's deep. And they will come back, is what Paul says. There is a remnant. Verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Well, that's what that means. The gospel will have even greater success in the world when the Israelites are saved, is what Paul's saying. Okay. We're almost done with the heavy theology. And we never get out of the heavy theology. But we're, we're almost done with the really deep, deep stuff. He goes on in verses 13 through 16. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, as he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. There he goes, he says it again. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul says that Jews coming to faith means life from the dead. What does that mean? Most scholars rightly understand that when that phrase, life from the dead, when Paul uses it, it means that he's talking about the physical resurrection of the dead. In other words, the salvation of all of Israel will be the climax of salvation history. In other words, we will never know when Jesus comes back. 
But we can in some way deduce that the Jews coming back to Jesus, that will be a part of the end of times. Does that make sense? There's a big fixation today amongst a lot of evangelicals about end times. Raise your hand if you know that person that's just like every time you crack open a Bible, they're like, oh, did you hear about the prophecy with the eclipse? Did you, you know? They say when that thing comes over Carbondale, Jesus coming back. I just, so many Christians I know, so many people, unbelievers I know, have been turned off by that one person who's just somehow interpreted every single prophecy there was. Does the last name Hagee? Y'all know, you know what I'm talking about? That guy who like made all the predictions? You'd think after a while he'd just stop predicting. You know, you get them all wrong and then you're still pumping out books. Some people's, somebody's buying them, I don't know. Christians, a lot of Christians today are fixed with the end times. And these are usually the same folks who sometimes are fixed with Israel. And please listen to me when I say this. I have no doubt that the physical site of Jerusalem, where it is, does have some part to play in the end of days. It does. You can't read Revelation and not think that. But make no mistake, the Bible is very clear that every promise of God given to the Jews is fulfilled in Christ, not by American diplomatic policy. Does that make sense? And what I mean by that? According to Paul, the best way to support Israel and fulfill the plan of God for the end of ages is to see that the Jews believe in the gospel, not that they accumulate their military. In 1948, the modern state of Israel was established after World War II. And we're just going into history, aren't we? You can't talk about the Jews and not mention these things. Because in 1948, many people interpreted giving the Jews back their Palestinian land as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And in some way it was. I mean, that's pretty incredible that, you know, America had a hand in that too, if you know anything about U.S. history. But what we need to understand when... If you think that the the ultimate end of God's promises is to give them back land that's going to perish in the end, you've got a really low view of the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1-2, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Christ Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now what I mean by that? If Israel is looking for its land, if Israel is looking for its true land, they better look to heaven. If Israel is looking for its true Savior, it better look past Moses and go to Christ. If Israel is looking for its true promises, it better start reading John 3.16. The, the promises and riches and grace and inheritance that God has for the Jewish people, it ain't in dirt. That's what Christians, this may be a little too simplistic, but they're caught up with this land stuff. And it is, and part of it is the land that's important. But we're trying to like, Christians collectively, we're trying to get the Jews to kind of go, 
The promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled by one of their own, but they happened to crucify Him. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Which brings us to why so many people hate Jews. Jews killed Jesus. And God's design is to one day let them go, my God, what have we done? Peter told them as much at Pentecost. But all the tongues and tribes and nations heard that. It wasn't just exclusively Jews. Now, someone in this audience this morning could be going, okay, I'll be, I mean, I get all that. That's, that's, that's good. I've never read that, and I'm glad I came. But what's that got to do with me? Very much, in fact. According to Paul, this grand design should severely humble you. Verses 17 through 18. But if some branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's us, Gentiles, And you, although a white olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, that's Christ, do not be arrogant toward the other branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. To any neo-Nazi white supremacist who would claim superiority over Jews because they've been rejected by God, and now Gentiles have been brought in, Paul's message is clear. Do not become arrogant, because it's only by God's sovereign pleasure that you were offered salvation. He's the root, you're the branch, don't confuse the two. We We are just a wild olive branch been grafted in. If anybody here, no one here is a Palestinian Jew. Paul goes on. Verses 19 through 22, Paul gives a command to us, the church. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They're broken off, the Jews, because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul's saying this, the Jews shouldn't stir us to anger, they should humble us. Because of what God is doing with the Jews, we should stand in fear. Because of what He's done, if we look with pride upon any other race or ethnicity, We are simply duplicating the sin of the Jews and God will not hesitate to punish us like He did them. If God did not spare prideful Jews, what do you think He would do to racist, prideful Gentiles? The kindness and severity of our God brings us to fear Him. Paul goes on, verse 23 through 24. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, God's saying, if I brought the gospel to you, an unbelieving Gentile, don't you think I could bring my own people back to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? The chapter is not done on the Jews. 
They will come to faith, some, the true Israel. If Romans 9-11 through is telling us one thing, it's this. God is sovereign over who is saved and when they're saved. Anti-Semitism, racism, Pharisee religion have one thing in common. An arrogant hatred for the sovereignty of God. Deep down, they cannot stand that God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. It's funny how people will hate talking about God choosing Christians in the New Testament, but then you'll go, what about Israel? And they'll go, yeah, that's God's chosen people. They have no problem with God choosing people in the Old Testament because they're not in the Old Testament. What do you think about an Edomite God going, I'm choosing Israel? God chooses whom He wills. I think it's because election today, as long as election doesn't have to do with us, it's not offensive. But the Bible is very clear that no matter the Old or the New Testament, God determines who is saved according to His sovereign pleasure. So if you're here today, if you're saved in Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, if you believe in the Gospel, you go, great is thy faithfulness. It's all you, it's not me. And Paul says that the Jews are being hardened because God has an appointed number of Gentiles He wishes to save first. So you better thank God for doing it the way He's doing it because we're in the second act of salvation history. Verses 25 through 32. 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has an appointed number. It's written in a book. God has a plan to save whom He wills, when He wills, how He wills. The the hardening of the Jews means God is busy in saving whites, blacks, and everybody else who's not Jewish. So in some sense, the heart and I want listen to me, in some sense, the hardening of Jews should unite believers of every ethnicity. Why is that? It doesn't unite us against Jews, but in a common recognition that none of us are Jews and none of us were chosen first. We are all receiving God's grace in the second chapter. We hold nothing of any superiority because if anyone has any claim to being first, it's the Jewish people. Therefore, in some sense, when a white supremacist claims superiority over a black person or a black panther claims superiority over a white person, that's theological nonsense. They're both not Jewish. (laughs) And they're both living in a country and in an ordained time of, of, of span of history that God has chosen with an opportunity to both hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's another thing. I have just, I have very little, this is where I'm going on my soapbox. I just have very little patience for people who try to, like, interpret America into Revelation. I don't see that in Revelation. Somebody going, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember, you know, the big, uh, the big eagle? You know, that, well, man, that ain't Uncle Sam. I don't know what it is. Well, you know, I think it's time to stop reading the Bible like a black person. Stop reading the Bible like a white person. Stop reading the Bible like an American. Read the Bible like a sinner. Amen. 
how should we how should we view Jewish people today? I think that's a practical question. How should I view the the Jew down the road? Because I'm going to be honest with you, Avi. I mean, it all makes sense, but he's not too kind to Christians. Well, we know why, because we just read it. His heart is hardened. Well, in some sense, we have to look at it two ways. We have to look at Jews, lost Jews, the same way we look at any lost American. They need Jesus. But in other sense, they are distinct in the sense that they do have a distinct purpose in the plan of God. Verses 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Meaning right now they stand opposed to the kingdom of God, therefore they are enemies in some sense. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Meaning some people right now, some Palestinian Jew is out there decrying Christians and God can do to him exactly what he did to Paul and that's blind him, turn him around, bang him off his horse, turn him back and say, you're now my vessel of mercy. God can do that. I really think Paul has a really good argument when he says, you don't think he can do that with the Jews? Look at what he did to me. If any Jew was abominable to God, it was Saul of Tarsus. If God can do that to... Some of y'all, some of us today, we're black and white, and we're going, I don't care about Jews or not. He did that to me too. Amen. I mean, you don't know who I was. I mean, you know me when I dress up and come to church, but I'm telling you, I live like Saul. If anything unites us all, it's that I was blind and now I see. For the gifts and the calling of God, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable meaning they're set in stone, they're irreversible. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, Gentiles, but now you've received mercy because of the disobedience, so they too, Jews, have, no, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. The travesty of the Jewish problem, and when I say that, let's, let's, let's pick the Pharisees, for example. What was the, what was the Pharisaical dilemma? It was God saying, I have chosen you all so that you all can be a light, and now you're hoarding the light. And now Paul is crafting this argument, and he's saying, hold up now, for you Gentiles that want to do the same thing. Do you see what I did to the Jews? Don't, Don't replicate the problem. Because if I didn't spare the natural branches, I brought you in the second chapter. You don't think I can do that to you? What God is doing with the Gentiles, the story of the Jews and their, and their, their stiff-necked people consistently going against the Lord, that should make us to two things. One, it should make us look to the mercy of God and go, man, God really put up with those people. Amen. But it should also make us stand in fear. The same God who saved Israel at the Red Sea was also the same God who let Israel watch as He flooded the Egyptian chariots. And what's it say? It says they stood in fear. We need to stand in fear. It's not so we can go, man, I'm glad I'm not them. 
Oh man, I'm glad I wasn't born an Egyptian. It's the 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 the, the, pur- the purpose of God's majesty and power and fear is not to bring us to go to pray the Pharisee prayer. I'm glad I'm not them. The point is for us to go how magnificent and how ri- how depths of His grace and how unworthy I am to receive His mercy. That's the whole point. In other words, whoever gets anything, it's literally, as Dave Ramsey likes to say, better than I deserve. I heard Dave Ramsey says that. I don't listen to Dave Ramsey. But my wife says I should. Um, in a world that hates each other, you know, I was in Baton Rouge for three years and Alton Sterling was killed. And then, like, a week later, a black guy killed three white police officers. And so we literally went one Sunday, we were talking about how God loves all races. And then the next Sunday, we said, God loves all professions and we were having a, and we were rallying around both black and white. You know, Ken Wynn said this morning, he said, I think we're never going to get anywhere until we both realize that racism is embedded in the human heart by virtue of us being sons of Adam. In a world that hates each other and can't tolerate differences, the only force strong enough to bring us together on earth is the power of God's love and the grace that comes from the gospel, and that is it. This week I heard this quote being tossed around. President Obama's tweet is now the most, most tweeted tweet of all time. He was quoting Nelson Mandela, who obviously did wonderful things. And I want to critique what Nelson said, not because I think it's wrong, I just think there, we, there's more to it. There's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic saying that he said, you know, we have to be taught how to love. We, were lear- we, taught, we learned how to hate so we can be taught how to love. And there's a lot of truth to that. But if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in the Bible, then you know that you were born a child of wrath and hating people isn't just something you picked up and learned. It's something that comes as natural to you as breathing air. Amen. And if you believe in the gospel, you know that you also, like Nelson said, you do have to learn love, but at the, at the end of the day, it's not something you can do with your own brain. Jesus has to change your heart. Amen. It's not cerebral. It's not intellectual. It's systemic. It's in the heart. There are black racists. There are white racists. And the only thing that's going to bring us is when we all, as one, collectively bow at the throne, go, I'm unworthy, he's unworthy, she's unworthy, worthy is the Lamb. Without the gospel and grace of Jesus to kill human pride, there is no force on earth that can kill human hatred. LeBron James, I'm a big LeBron fan. I'm sorry, Devron. You know, I'm sorry. You're all, you're all about Steph. Good. I love LeBron James, and LeBron, he keeps talking. He, he, you know, he's he's he's. We're in the age now where celebrities have this. You know, they feel like they got to say all this stuff. And, 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 and a lot of times I agree, a lot of times I don't agree. One thing I found with LeBron, I don't think he's a believer, 
But he said something that was really biblically accurate. I just don't think he said it because he's a believer. And he said, he goes, hatred's going to be around forever until the, as long, he, said, he said something like, it's always, America, as long as America's around, it's going to be like that. And, I'm gonna, and I agree with that. Only because I, I want to add, just like I wanted to add to Nelson's statement, I want to add to LeBron's statement and say, it's going to be around, but it's only going to be around as long as Christ chooses not to come. History is Christ's word. We have to look back at human history and we have to go. We don't want to exalt those people, but we don't want to exalt ourselves over them. We need to know that before history is the history of God's redemption of sinners. Yes, we can be taught how to hate. Yes, we can be taught in some sense how to love. But it's not really about teaching. It's about calling upon God to change us. Amen. And I'm going to say this. I have black babies. I don't walk around with a shirt that says, hey, my kids are black. But in some ways, you know, what I found out when I had black kids, I found out I had a little racism in me. I do. And I'm not going to do anything for the kingdom. I'm not going to teach anybody anything until I deal with what's in my own heart. It's systemic. And Paul is coming back to the fact that, look, 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 it's all grace. I hardened them, but they're coming back. We have no platform to look and think that ourselves are superior to anyone, especially the Jews, because God's not done yet. I think it's amazing, just to end, I think it's amazing how Paul ends Romans 11. It's pure praise and worship. Amen. We should read Romans 11 and the unfolding plan of God. And, and we, when we come out, I'm going to talk about this next week. I talked to him downtown a little bit a couple weeks ago. Paul doesn't come out and go, Whew, got, we got done with all that theology stuff. What's he do? He comes out and he says, how the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and that He has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That is called pure doxology. There's no way Paul wrote that and didn't get a little giddy. I mean, you can just hear it. He's excited. He's like, man, hey, the deeper I go and find out what God's got in store for this world, I can't help but praise Him. Amen. You know, the images from Charlottesville were striking. Nazism is abominable to our God. and But those people do need Jesus. But their fate will be just like any others apart from the blood of Jesus. That's why we condemn that evil. But we also do this. How could someone watch TV today? This week, I couldn't even put on the TV. How could you watch TV today and not think... And How could you live as an American with constant 24-hour TV, news, and social media and not believe in a sovereign God? Because if you don't believe that God is sovereign, you have got to be a bitter person. How can you make it? How can you stand it? If God's not in control, we're headed off the cliff. The only thing that's going to get you through this week, the next time somebody who goes to your church goes, I can't believe you said that. 
that. Next time somebody at work where you go, I just wanted to, and you go home and you lip off to your husband and you're like, man, I just wanted to, you know, I know. Everybody's had that this week where you just kind of go, is there anywhere I can go? I can't even flip on ESPN anymore without hearing about it. How can you live your life as a Christian in a topsy-turvy, corrupt, imbalanced world and not come back to a God who works all things according to the counsel of His will? you got to have that. Because unless you believe God is in control, you will be depressed and you're going to be mean. That's why I think Paul gets to the end of Romans 11 and he goes, I'm so glad God is God. This week, in our world, first of all, we need to pray. And you need to pray for Donald Trump. He's your president. We're going to get to that in Romans 13. (laughs) But you also need to pray for people that hate you. Because here's the thing. People will talk about hate speech. In today's world, hate speech can mean that you're a neo-Nazi, but it's increasingly coming to mean those who stand up for the unborn and those who stand up for biblical marriage. Those same people who love you because you stand against bigotry may hate you tomorrow because you believe homosexuality is a sin. You are called to love the people today who will hate you tomorrow. And you are called to love Jews even when they killed your Savior. That is a testament to our God. The world has a monopoly on hate, but... As we've learned in 1 John, the only place they're going to come and get love is for those who have been remade and are found in Jesus. Amen. I wanted to end just with thinking. Think in your mind. Why would Paul end this entire discourse on Romans 11 and give us one of the best examples of praise and worship in the entire Bible? I think it's because he gets to the end and he goes, God is amazing. This week, that has to be able to get you through. It has to. Because if you're fueled on anything else, if your strength is in numbers, if your strength is in Fox News, if your strength is in whatever website you want to read, if your strength is not in the Lord, you will be angry. And that peace and that joy, when someone comes across and you're in a happy mood and no one else is, they're going to go, what in the world drives you every day? It's the blood of Jesus and there's your gospel opportunity. When people are angry, lost, confused, out of control, looking for direction, that's when the gospel works its power best. If we can learn anything from the Jews, it's that it's still by grace. And grace humbles everyone. When we look to the cross, we see that grace. And the cross is good enough for Gentiles, it's good enough for Jews, and we stand in the light of that grace today. And so when we look at God's plan for the Jews, we see that God is faithful to His Word, but we see that God is good to those who don't deserve it. Amen. Let's live our week this week in the light of that truth. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, You are so good. You are so faithful. 
And it's with the confidence that your word has not failed that I can live each day knowing that the reason the promises are kept is because you're the promise keeper. You are unwavering. You are unshakable. And Lord, in a world out of control, we need to understand two things. One, this world isn't going to last anyway. But your love endures forever. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.